Imagine if you could sit down at your desk in the morning, piping hot coffee in hand, you could pop open your laptop, double click on a document on your desktop that says life plan, so you could check on what's happening this week, this month, or even this year. Well, I wanna help you create that plan. Let's spend five days together making a roadmap for your future so that you can live all the rest of your days on purpose. Yes, you can own the future that's coming your way. The five-day Own Your Future Challenge is absolutely free to join, and I've got a spot with your name on it. Don't let another week, month, year, or even decade pass you by without owning the vision for who you want to become and the impact you want to make while you're alive. This is five free days of learning from incredible world leaders, helping you to uncover who you truly are and leading you to craft a roadmap and set goals aligned with the future meant for you. This is important. Join me and other amazing global leaders and experts to help you own your future starting May 11th. You can join right now for free at jennaschallenge.com. That's jennaschallenge.com for the five-day Own Your Future Challenge. I can't wait to see you there. You're listening to The Gold Digger Podcast, episode 140. Guess what? You can find purpose in any work that you do, whether you're an intern, an executive, an entrepreneur, or anything else. Purpose can help motivate you while also providing you with those good vibes that we all need to move forward with every task we face throughout the day, even the tasks that we hate doing. Today, I am bringing on Leah Weiss. She's a lecturer, a researcher, a writer, and a published author. She has trained thousands of executives, team members, employees on the topic of mindfulness. She's taken years of personal and academic mindfulness research and applied it to her training seminars, speaking engagements, Ivy League courses, and a future book that is going to be published soon. Now, she has worked with some huge clients from Google to LinkedIn and countless other And what I love about this Stanford instructor is that she can just break it down in a way that is so applicable no matter what you're doing in your life. And Gold Diggers, today you get to hear how you can infuse presence and joy and mindfulness into your work and into your life every darn day. And I'm sharing a little bit about my journey because Leah is just pulling things out of me that I have been wanting to share and not quite sure how to do that. Now, before we dive on in, I want to go through the review of the week. This is coming from JL Photography, and she says, as a fellow entrepreneur, Jenna's advice, realness, and bubbly personality make her just the friend I need to kick my butt into gear. Her podcasts are full of tips. They're inspiring, motivating, and just plain fun to listen to, not to mention the guests she has have an air to offer fresh perspectives and exciting conversation. This podcast is a pep talk that will pump you up to get after your dreams. Thank you so much, JL Photography. And guess what, friends? I could be reading your review on next week's show. All you have to do, take two minutes, leave us a review. Trust me when I say it makes a giant difference. Now, without further ado, let's focus our attention on today's show with the incredible Leah Weiss. You're listening to the Gold Digger Podcast, where we firmly believe that work doesn't have to feel like work. Self-made millionaire and marketing guru Jenna Kutcher will help you redefine what success looks like. It's time to hear from the experts. Listen in on honest conversations, 
and learn the best tips and tricks that helped others pave their own way and craft their dream career. If you're ready to dig in, do the work, and tackle your biggest goals, you're in the right place. Here's your host, educator, photographer, and mac and cheese lover, Jenna Kutcher. All right, Leah, welcome to the show. I'm so excited about our conversation. So thank you so much for coming on Gold Digger. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to talking to you, Jenna. Oh, I'm so excited. So let's first just kind of start. I mean, let's be honest, Leah, you have a ton of impressive titles behind your name and all of these credentials, but I want to hear about the story and the journey that you've been on that has led you to where you are today. Mm, I love stories. I f- I, it's my favorite starting place. So thank you yes. for asking. I turn 40 next week, and it's also feeling like a really good time to be, you know, looking back and reflecting and also resetting mm-hmm. purpose and goals professionally and beyond right now. So I appreciate I love that opportunity. So I, the sort of short version ish, <laughs> <laughs> is I grew up in Jersey. And I was first exposed to mindfulness and compassion and meditation practices from actually my middle school teacher, who's an incredible author named Dean Slider and still dear friend of mine. And I was really compelled by it from the first time I encountered it. But, you know, I was also busy being a teenager and going to high school and a lot of other things that were really important, like to hit every possible Grateful Dead show I could and (laughs) play basketball games and, you know, do homework and get detention, all that good stuff. And when I got to college my second year, I went to Stanford, which was across the country from where I grew up. And I had kind of two back-to-back experiences that really shook me. They rocked me to my core and I think put mindfulness and compassion and practice and purpose like front and center in my life in a way they probably wouldn't have otherwise like happens for all of us, right? Like things in our lives. It's so interesting. That's why I love story. And I'm glad you're starting there. So I had my closest childhood friend from growing up he, when we got to college, you know, it's the age when people have mental illness and acute illnesses, often they, the onset is in late teens, early twenties. And so he developed a really challenging schizophrenia and he, and he had come out to Stanford. He had transferred, he's a brilliant guy. He had come from Brown to Stanford in large part so we could be closer to each other because I was a big part of his support system. So anyways, his mental health, you know, deteriorated and he ended up taking his life. And it was just such, it just shook me. You know, it was awful. He was so brilliant and wonderful. And I think about him every day, dream about him all the time still. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so right at the same time as that happened, my father was diagnosed with the cancer that eventually took his life. So for me, like those two events were so I just couldn't like keep going through the motions like going to classes didn't feel it like I was like I have to go do something now that feels I can't fake anything I need to do something that feels deeply meaningful so I was lucky Mm -hmm. enough to have a mentor who helped me 
put together a research plan and funding and everything to go to Northern India and live in Tibetan refugee communities. So that's what I did. And the time I spent there, even further ingrained, you know, the just the power of these practices to make people resilient in situations that you just couldn't fathom, but they were not only fathoming them, they were living, you know, like, for example, at the Tibetan children's village, where there were, you know, all these orphans from Tibet, they were out of their country, many of them were separated from their parents, or their parents had passed away. And, you know, the people who were teaching them and taking care of their needs, living in the houses with them, like the way they practiced and drew strength from that, I was like, this is what I'm looking for. So then for me, the next bunch of years really came into highlighting personal practice. So I did a lot of 100-day, six-month retreats. And then I also, I would spend like three to six months of the year in retreat, going through the Tibetan curriculum of teacher training. And then I would go to grad school or I would go do work in my social work internship and then later doctoral program. So the in and out of those was where I really started shaping my teaching. And yeah, so that's kind of the bigger, earlier part for me, the why behind it. And it's just, you know, all the twists and turns like our lives tend to take, you know, ended up back out at Stanford working at the Compassion Center with the Dalai Lama's interpreter, Chupton Jimpa, and developing this compassion training program and developing a course that I wrote that I put together for the business school at Stanford, developing programs for veterans with PTSD, for emerging leaders, for active leaders and organizations across disciplines. And But it really all comes back to this, like we need to have strong why and mm-hmm. we need to have practice and, you know, trying to get a more coherent sense of our personal professional selves so that we feel less fractured and we can be who we want to be, or at least be more aligned with that as much as possible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, someone asked me today how I would define mindfulness, and I would love to hear how Leah defines what mindfulness is. So my favorite definition is the short one of the intent, (laughs) (laughs) partly because I can remember it, which always makes me feel proud. (laughs) I have three little kids. So when I remember anything, I'm like, yes, this is a win. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) The intentional use of attention. So intentionally using our attention. And the reason Mm -hmm. I love that is there's nothing in that that's saying eyes closed, clear your mind, no thoughts, you know, it's intentional use of attention could actually be applied anywhere. It could be applied while we're sitting in a meeting, while we're on a conference call, while we're, you know, cooking dinner, cleaning up or helping our kids with our homework or, you know, doing our workout. So for me, this integration piece is really interesting and I love meditation But I think we've gotten really confused in all this great popularity of mindfulness. It's become overly focused on silent meditation, which clearly I'm a fan of. I've spent a lot of my life Mm -hmm. doing it. But the point of those practices are to be intentionally aware. So let's keep our focus on that. And then we can also find all sorts of creative ways to be doing that 
all throughout our day, not just for a few minutes a day. Um, so that's what I, that's how I define it and why. I love that. So one thing that I think is so interesting, and I, I really want to dig into this with you today is I feel like so many brilliant entrepreneurs and thought leaders, like they all say meditation is a part of their morning routine or whatever that looks like. And and kind of like you said, it's almost becoming trendy in a sense, which is beautiful if practiced in a way that really gives people true the ability to be mindful. Um, so can you talk about like how meditation has changed with the days and ages and kind of what true meditation is? Mm, I'm loving that question. Yeah. Well, and I love that it's in your question. I think a big part of what's so interesting that is just rooted in how you asked that question that there's the history of these practices. I mean, if we want to look broadly, like mm -hmm. mindfulness meditation is historically contextualized, at least as we practice it in secular, like academic settings, it's 99.9% .9 of these programs are derived from Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. But if we, there's some programs that are derived from from practices in other religions, like Christianity, for example. But in the bigger picture, like from a 10,000 foot view, all religious traditions have, all the wisdom traditions have practices that are targeting this idea of how we pay attention and purpose and compassion. I mean, these are not, um, the, these are expressed in different ways and different practices for sure. But I think that it's really interesting to keep that bigger view because I think it speaks to this core human need that we have to have our days feel meaningful and to be socially connected with other people and feel a sense of purpose. And to do all of that, we need to be continually stewarding our own attention. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about meditation, and, and you said this before, too, is it's not like you're lying on the floor in total silence. What can meditation look like? And it can look different for everyone. But maybe mm -hmm. the better question would be like, what does it look like for you or in the way that you teach about it? Yeah. So for me, I do a lot of different kinds of practice because I spend a lot of time training and learning in Tibetan Buddhism, which has a number of different ways of visualizing and doing all sorts of different physical and mental approaches to practice. Um, the way that I teach meditation is very influenced by that because what I try to do is give people access to a number of different approaches with the goal that they find a way in that really resonates and feels that they feel at home in and that they can make a home for themselves in. So, you know, there just to talk practically in terms of like a practice most or many of your listeners I would imagine would have heard some version of of, you know, something to do with your breath, right? When we think mm -hmm. meditation, often that's the image of closed eyes, maybe seated on the floor if our body can handle it and doing something or other with our breath. So the breath is an example of an object that we can return our attention to repeatedly. And the physical sensations of the breath, I like to think of as an anchor for our attention. 
And then our attention moves all over the place. And I'm imagining that most of you all listening and like Jenna, like me, like our minds are full from the second we wake up with all sorts of stuff we want to do and ideas and, you know, energy and drive. So where the mindfulness and the meditation practice comes in. So picture if you start your day with an object, it doesn't have to be breath, but continuing this example. So we sit for a few minutes, we feel the breath coming in and out of our body. Each time our mind wanders to the million things, we notice it's wandered and return it back to the breath. And then it'll wander again, right? And then we'll return it again. And we'll notice like, what is that? Where is our mind being pulled towards and what, you know, what feels most seductive in that? And when is it hard? And why is it hard to bring the mind back? Um, And all of that process of getting to know our own mind in this really intimate way. I'm noticing I'm using a lot of words like seductive and intimate, which is totally not my style. So I don't know what's going on. Roll with it. Yeah, we'll worry about that later. (laughs) We're being very mindful of those words. (laughs) Yeah, so the muscle that we're developing is that exactly honed the moment we notice our mind is wandered off and then we reclaim the option to bring it back to where we want it. So with that kind of a definition, then I think it becomes really clear why this is relevant to us in our work lives or transitioning between the different roles with work and family and friends and, 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 and. What happens over time is you build this muscle of returning the attention, which we call in research meta-awareness. So it's that ability, like the meta part implies, it's the clicking up, seeing what's happening is at the, at the same time as we're doing, which so supports our ability to make decisions, to not lose chunks of days or days on end doing things that weren't important, but we just got caught up in them. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those transitions and prioritizations are really boosted by this skill of mindfulness and you can see why a practice like the breath could help you develop it. And there's tons of other ways, by the way. There's nothing like magical about the breath. So that's mm-hmm. something we could talk more about. But Yeah, it's so great to hear you talk about this because one of the things that I always felt like is I would be like, okay, I'm going to meditate every day for 15 minutes. And I, as an achiever, I always felt like a failure while I was trying to meditate because I was like, I can never get my mind blank because that was what I visualized as success. And as somebody who loves to have outcomes of everything, it was never a practice. It was always a task. Can you walk us through kind of what it would look like if somebody wanted to start you know, incorporating more mindfulness practices or meditation, where would be a good starting point in terms of creating a habit or a routine around it? Yeah. So I think, you know, it kind of depends on you. If you're someone, and I think it's good to start with that fact, because I like offering a range of options. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, people can just pick from that menu. 
So for some people, it's really helpful to have some sort of a class and structure in the beginning because it, it lets you have that accountability and a period of time when you're, you know, each week you're returning to this. So it helps with that accountability for making a new habit. I know some of you listeners might be like me and you need another class, like a hole in the head or another commitment on your calendar. <laughs> like the last thing you want. That's a very stressful idea. I hear you. I feel that. So then I also think another great approach is just the real simplicity of start your day with five minutes or one minute, you know, one minute when you sit up in your bed and pick a practice that resonates with you. And, you know, beyond what we'll get to talk about today, you can also go to my website um, where I lay out in my book that is coming up. What I'm trying to do is take this whole menu of options and give you the sort of breakout cheat sheet for where to start. So you pick your practice and you start with a minute a day. Then you build up to three minutes a day. And for some people, just building that habit in. And in addition to a meditation practice, what I really recommend is putting like prompts into your day or Mm -hmm. rituals. So And it can be things that you're already doing. If you look at your days, like, is there a tea break that you're already taking? Or is there some, you know, quick walk after you drop the kids off at school or look for something that is already in your day or easily doable and have that be your reminder to just while you're doing that walk or brewing that cup of tea or coffee to drop multitasking and be present in your body use your attention intentionally to really be fully present with what you're doing. And if you put those little spots throughout your day, and there's so many different ways that students have talked about doing this over the years now that I've been teaching. So I've got a whole list of cool ideas around that. You know, some people are like my daily shower, when I brush my teeth, other people, the password on my phone, on my or every time I open my computer, I put a, it's a reminder to me, or I put a decal that says mm-hmm. breathe, you know, on my laptop. And, you know, it might sound cheesy, but actually if we can remember 30 times or 10 times or five times during the day to just take that brief break and root ourselves, it goes a long way. Hmm. One thing that I've been doing is I have a yoga mat out in my bedroom and I usually work up in our attic, which is finished. And then food is down in the basement. And so if I go onto the middle floor, I stop on my mat, do three sun salutations, and then I can go downstairs. So just having those cues or triggers can be so helpful in just pulling you out from that headspace that you're in and pulling you back to where you are. I love that example. I love that example. And like, when you do that, do you feel like, oh, I just lost three minutes of my day? Or no, how does that never. <laughs> well, and that's what's so interesting about this. And and before we got on the show, I was telling Leah, I'm like, you know, a lot of this stuff was just so over my head. And I just never understood the value. And I always thought it wasn't possible for me because you know, we love to trick ourselves into believing that we're not capable of slowing down. And so I have been just like practicing so much, even yoga. It used to be the biggest struggle for me because my brain was just going a million miles a minute and you have to just keep practicing. And I think so often we're so used to achieving that if we're not quote achieving something, we just move on. So I want to talk and kind of twist this conversation a little bit into 
what role can mindfulness play in terms of our careers? Because just like you just said, you know, do you feel like you wasted three minutes? I think so often we're scrambling. And so we we imagine adding something new into our routine. And it's almost like I don't have time for that. But can we talk about what it's giving us instead of what it's taking from us? Absolutely. So I think the highest level, what it gives us that we need is it improves our mental game. Mm -hmm. And I've been hearing that term mental game used all over the place at the business school at Stanford, where I teach. And it's interesting. It's a moment I feel like where the students are really hearing that all over the place, not just in their mindful leadership class, but, mm-hmm. you know, in their startup class where people who have created the biggest, you know, startups in the world come in and talk about what was the difference for them that, that got it off the ground. And they're talking about their mental game or people in their finance classes or, or you name it because, it's everything comes down to our ability to make decisions. We make 35,000 decisions a day. Are they going to be good ones? There's a direct relationship to our ability to know what the factors that we are evaluating are, which mindfulness improves. Mindfulness improves our focus. It improves our creativity. It improves our relationships because we have higher empathic accuracy. We read people more accurately if we're paying attention to them, which is almost so obvious, it seems like stupid to say it. But, you know, when we're distracted, it's the problems that compound are enormous. And I see that in my own business, too, that, you know, one of the biggest challenges is just wrangling my attention, and then also making choices in the moment about how to work with my team, how to keep us all on priorities, how to communicate my, you know, what I think should happen, how to listen to them and stop talking, which is, you can clearly all tell is also a challenge. Keep it going, girl. This is your show. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So what are little things, little habits or tasks or practices that we can do throughout the day to just simply become more present and to find purpose in our day-to-day lives? What are some little action steps? I know we've talked about triggers or just slowing down and breathing. Are there any other hacks that we can incorporate? Absolutely. So I think we can take a deep dive if we're a person in our business So in research on businesses, when you ask people what their top two pet peeves are at work, what their biggest frustrations are, it's meetings that are a waste of time Mm -hmm. and loud coworkers, (laughs) like obnoxious (laughs) coworkers or rude coworkers, you name it. So, you know, you could pick one way of going about this is you could pick something that's a pain point. So like if you're finding that meetings are taking up too much of your time, they're really frustrating, they're not run well. Well, you could do a full court press on bringing mindfulness into the meetings, introducing things like restructuring the way agendas are set, attendees are invited, time is used, communication patterns happen. Sometimes taking that a lot of organizations are turning to taking that pause in the beginning of meetings, if not for an actual meditation, for some sort of check-in. 
because people mm-hmm. are realizing that if we don't know what's going on with other people and distracting and upsetting them, we can speed through and skip those three minutes. But that information might be really important and <laughs> be the difference between all of this working out or not working out in what we're mm-hmm. trying to accomplish. So I've got a whole like booklet together around mindful meetings, how to problem solve and how to make them better. So see where you're going off the rails and improve them. So that's one place that I really recommend. And sometimes the mindfulness of the meeting is like starts with just when we're invited to something, is this a good use of my time? Can mm-hmm. I send someone else? Should this be pushed off till Q1, you know, rather than be crammed into Q4 before the holidays, like asking, mm-hmm. pausing and asking those questions rather than there's a great TED talk about mindless accept syndrome for just like a meeting invite pops up and we say yes. And there goes mm-hmm. a chunk of our time and more and more. So that's like the meeting based approach. And that booklet I was talking about, you can find, you'll stick it in the show notes if that's cool with you. Yeah, that's perfect. And then the other thing, like clicking up a level, which can apply to anyone, is starting your work day with just even a brief, like, what is my purpose? What's my biggest priority? In anticipating when you look at your calendar for the day, what are the biggest struggles and challenges going to be the biggest distractions from this purpose that is the priority and see what you can do to remove those distractions. If they're environmental or if there are things on your calendar that shouldn't be there, or if it's just, you know, I've been doing this a fair amount lately. I'm trying to grade and just, I keep finding myself in email. Like that's Mm -hmm. not what I'm about right now. (laughs) Inbox zero is not the goal of the day. The goal of the day Mm -hmm. is X. So mapping even the little plan and, and more like of the, on a sticky note, the very short list of things, or some people love their planners where you get to list out all the priorities and all the things. But I think there's a value to having it be super short Think about it each day, predict your distractions, Mm -hmm. clarify how the activity that you're doing is connected to your bigger purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we think about that when we set out our goals for our business. But I think what happens as we're executing on them is we lose track. And so it ends up feeling like a bunch of grunt work if we lose that thread between here's my big goal for like my big vision impact, capital P purpose, here's my goal for this project. And here's what I got to do to get from here to there. And as much as we can connect the dots, that has a huge impact on our productivity. And also, there's really cool research showing that that sense of moment by moment purpose has enormous health benefits. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, it's so interesting when you were talking, I started to kind of connect the dots of a lot of powerful entrepreneurs who, you know, incorporate meditation and mindfulness into their days. I think that they're just so much more focused. And I think that they're so much more clear on their best yeses and the, you know, need to say no's. And so it's not even necessarily the act of meditation, as in I'm sitting down and meditating for 20 minutes, I think it's 
the art of mindfulness in every task. And and I laugh because I have 15 tabs open on my Internet Explorer right now. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's those days where I feel like I'm wired because I'm thinking of all the things, but I'm not really focusing on any one thing. Do you think that's true? Do you think I'm connecting yes. any dots or no, <laughs> I think way that's off course? <laughs> no, I think that is exactly, exactly right. And I think one of the best ways to deal with that fact is like when we do the experiments of, you know, remembering how it felt when we have these pockets of time where we were in the zone and we were focused mm-hmm. on one thing versus like having a day where we were attempting to multitask. And by the way, multitasking doesn't exist. We can only do one thing at a time. So we switch, it's called task switching and there's huge costs for our time and for our energy. So like doing that mental comparison of how does it feel and what is our actual productivity and experience of trying to do all the things at one time versus doing that Mm -hmm. one thing really meticulously, even in a short burst. Like this is a great chance to apply. I'm a big fan of Pomodoros or, you know, setting the 25 minute timer and do the focused sprint. I mean, that can be an expression of mindfulness, especially if you're paying attention to all the things that pull your attention within those 25 minutes. And if you break your Pomodoro, then it, that's so interesting to look back. What was it that felt so important? Or what was I feeling about what I was, I thought was the priority? There was some conflict in me because I didn't actually want to do it. What I wanted to do was get away from it. So what was that about? Mm-hmm. That's, that's all productive. That's leadership. That's growth. That's so funny that you just said that because literally yesterday I made my entire team just track their hours using the hours app in the sense of like, what is it that we're spending our hours on? And it wasn't even a an efficiency tool. It was, I want to see like, what are we inspired by? Where does flow state actually happen? Where are we getting distracted? Where are we dreading to be working? Because I think that especially when you start to lead a team, you know, there are so many things that we're doing and spending our time on that aren't actually moving the needle in any way, shape or form, especially from a personal development standpoint. When you think about mindfulness in terms of work, can you talk a little bit about flow state and what that is and, you know, what happens when you're in flow? Absolutely. So when we're in a flow state, when we're in that experience where like we it feels really pleasurable, we are in what we're doing, we're immersed. There's this focus, but it's a relaxed focus, but it's not overly relaxed. It's we're engaged, but we're not hyper. We're not bouncing off the walls. We're really in that. We're in the zone with what we are doing. So the way that I connect that with mindfulness practice is mindfulness is looking at how we pay attention and training ourselves to find that middle sweet spot where it is that relaxed focus. And we can train ourselves and get better and better at creating that both on the cushion in a formal meditation, but then applying that using our attention on the task that we're doing. 
So like one of the traditional metaphors for mindfulness practice is a sitar string, or you could think of it as a guitar string. It's too tight. If our mind is too tight or we're holding things too tightly, too stressed, too anxious, we're bouncing all over the place. It's like the tight string or the string is too loose. Like we're dull, we're sleepy, you know, we're kind of the other end of the spectrum. That's like, you know, the string that's bowing down and you can't make a sound you need that middle place to hit the notes that to make the music. And the same is true with our attention. We need to hit that middle range. And I think you're exactly on point. There's multiple ways of doing that. One is like when we're working on work that we are naturally compelled by, it becomes much easier to enter that flow state. But another way, so that's a great way in. And, and I assigned something actually very similar to what you're talking about as a way to do mindfulness of time tracking. And, and that's the baseline for exploring a lot of interesting questions around purpose. And so I love that you're doing that with your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other way in is you can create that middle ground attentional state by getting better and better at mindfulness practice. Yeah, both work. Incredible. So this is just straight up curiosity getting me. But what does your morning routine look like? Do you have any things that you practice right away in the morning or any rituals or traditions that you use to start your day in an intentional way? Yes. I love morning routines. I think they're fascinating. I agree with that. I really (laughs) do. I love hearing what people do. I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Awesome. Deal. (laughs) Okay. So mine is if there's a kid in our bed, which there often is these days, (laughs) um, they're all boomeranging back in. So I love just like not jumping out of bed and having even a quick snuggle with them and just wishing them all good things as they're exploring the world that day. And usually shortly after that, they start, you know, bouncing off the walls and run out of the room. And so I'll have a quick meditation session. And usually at that point, it might just be five minutes or a minute if I really am feeling like I've, you know, depending on the timing, and what, how many people need to go in different directions. And then I try to really keep the interactions with the family in the morning all keeping my attention focused on them. So drinking that first cup of coffee while really engaging with the kids and trying to see Mm -hmm. what's going on with them and with my husband. And then, you know, doing all the things, the million lunches that need to be made and the backpacks found and the fights broken up and all that. (laughs) that. And then once everyone clears out, then I'll do another session of sitting before I start my work. And ideally, I'll do some exercise at that point, or I would schedule it in later in the day. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the reverse, it's pretty much a similar process in reverse in the evening. Yeah, to wind down. But I love, yeah, I feel like these intentional starts of the day and then putting, if we do that in the beginning and the end, and then we can just drop in even these little moments in the middle when I feel like I'm actually doing that, it goes a long way. What about you? Oh, well, mine has changed so much just since starting this journey. So I used to be the girl that just grabbed her phone, scrolled through all the things, checked my email, checked my Instagram, you know, all the important things in life, not. So I have started to charge my phone 
outside of our bedroom. So no phones, no screens in our room. And I start with gratitude. So when I wake up, I just take a few minutes to look around, to say a prayer, whatever that looks like of just gratitude. And then I either read a book just for fun. So even if it's just a few pages to get my my imagination going or my creativity sparked. And I love just reading for leisure without feeling like there has to be a purpose or a learning moment from it. And then I go on a walk with my dog. So now if I don't take them on a walk right away, they are like barking until I go. So now it's just Mm -hmm. part of the life, which is great, except for now that it's getting so cold out, it's a little harder. But we'll usually go on like a hour long walk and I'll either listen to music or I'll call my mom. And I don't generally start my day day until about like 10 a.m. Because usually I'll try to get in a yoga class or just sip my coffee slow and, you know, I think that what is so interesting about just the change is that I think for so long, I would work from sunup till sundown. And I thought that being busy was a sign of success. And I think that in slowing down, I am more productive, but I'm I'm not just more productive because I think that shouldn't be the goal. I think I'm more focused and I'm more clear. So it's definitely been an interesting journey. And there are definitely days where that doesn't happen in my life looks like the old life where I crack open my computer right at the beginning of the day. But I would say I'm at an 80-20 percentage of the new way and I don't want to go back to the old way. That's amazing. Well, and I love that you frame it too. It's like most of the time is a pretty great success rate. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like so many people set it up that it has to be, it's one of the things that really can become overwhelming. If it's Mm -hmm. not a hundred percent, then we failed and then we quit. I love how you're building in that sanity there. Yeah, I think we have to. And I think too, I've been working with an amazing, like not like a life coach, but she's so focused on that stuff. So even our task for this week is to just be mindful when we're getting ready for bed. So you know, feeling the face wash on your skin, feeling the temperature of the water, you know, listening to the sounds. And, and it's so simple, but, but a lot of times I struggle to like slow my brain down when it comes time to shut off. And so just even implementing little practices like that, I think can help. And, you know, doing 10 minutes of yoga before bed to just focus on the breath and So it's just, it's a practice. It's definitely a practice, which is why I think what you do is just so incredible. Have you, I mean, do you put pressure on yourself? Because you cannot be mindful 100% of the time. So I got to imagine that that can be kind of hard. I view myself as very much a work in progress. And self-criticism is definitely something I struggle with. So I like, I probably could answer that yes and no, like, yes, I, you know, I think the accurate way to look at it and the healthy way to look at it is, you know, it's a path. It's called practice for a reason because we need to practice. It's not about perfectionism. And, you know, I've recently, I feel like in the last few years, begun really having more of a sense of humor around some of like, you know, some of the self-talk that's just not helpful and almost funny because it's so silly. It's like, mm-hmm. is it really helpful? Like when I'm in the middle of a, you know, disagreement with my four-year-old to also be criticizing myself, like, oh, like compassion teacher should be better at this. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like 
you know, a sort of Larry David and a Seinfeld kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those inner dialogues are so powerful and compassion for ourselves is probably the hardest task we could ever be given. I think that's a hundred percent right. We could have a whole other long conversation exactly on that point and why <laughs> so important, right? Because mm-hmm. We, if we can't be living life, first of all, but we also can't be entrepreneurs and growing professionally and trying to learn and make experiments if we can't fail, but self-criticism becomes such a painful part of failing that it, it's, you know, the sort of cliche of fail fast. That's the best way to get to market. Give it your prototype, then you'll fix it. But, you know, this is one of the things I think is so interesting. I do a lot of work with self-compassion in the leadership classes I teach at Stanford and with people in companies. And, you know, it's a real disconnect. People can tell you the reasons why they can't, why it's important, but they can't. Mm -hmm. um, It's a whole, it's a practice and a training. Where can everybody find you? I mean, where can everyone connect with you, learn more about what you do, what you teach, and how you lead people through all of these practices? So the best place to find me is through my website, which is leahweissphd.com, which we'll put in the show notes, I assume. Mm-hmm. And, and then I've got a Facebook group that's about 15,000 people, and I share a lot of articles and tips, practice, and it's really about bringing mindfulness to work. So I'd love to see anybody there who's interested. And then I teach workshops and do I have an online course that'll be coming out Q1 or two. We'll see exactly when it lands. The website's the best hub for finding all this stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. And I think it just serves as an encouragement that no matter how busy we are, there's something so beautiful about just focusing our attention, whether that's on our business, our relationships, our dreams, our goals. So thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, Jenna, for having me. It's been such a pleasure to spend time with you. We should do a part two because I feel like we'll need it. (laughs) I would love that. I don't know about you, but after that interview, I just want to sit and focus. I think what is so powerful about the way that Leah describes what true mindfulness is, is not this success or failure. You're not successful at meditating or you're failing at it and you should never try it again. But in just redirecting your thoughts, in bringing them back home and acknowledging the things that are distracting you and really digging a little bit deeper into the why behind that. And trust me when I say that this stuff always felt so over my head. I believed so many lies about what mindfulness looked like in my life and how I could actually implement it. And I struggled and wrestled with it for so long. But I can truly tell you that when you give yourself space and margin to truly be present, you are more productive, you're more efficient, you're more focused, and you can be more strategic because instead of feeling like your brain has a million tabs open, you can just bring it back into the task that you are working on in the moment. So thank you, Leah, for your expertise. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you tuned into today's show and you want to just say, hey, uh, take a screenshot, tag me in it. I'd love to connect with you online, hear what your biggest takeaways were. And as always, gold diggers, keep on digging your biggest goals. Until next time, I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Gold Digger Podcast. 
Dive into the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.golddiggerpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with a friend. The more the merrier. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, you gold digger you.